Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 41, Doubt, a Parable, by John Patrick Shanley. Uh, this morning, before I spoke with Mrs. Miller, I took the precaution of calling your last parish. What are you saying? Who? The pastor. I did not speak to the pastor. I spoke to a nun. You, you should have spoken to the pastor. I spoke to a nun. You know, that's not the proper route for you to have taken, sister. The church is very clear. You're supposed to go through the pastor. Why? You have an understanding, you and Hayden? No, you have no right to go rummaging through my past. You have a history. This is your third parish in five years. Call the why? pastor. Ask him why I left. Is perfectly innocent. I'm not calling the pastor. Now, I'm a good priest. Go after another child. I had another child until no, you no. are stopped. What, what nun did you speak to? I won't say. I've not touched a you child. You have! You have the slightest proof of anything. But I have my certainty. And on with that, I'll go to your last parish. And the one before that. If necessary, I'll find a parent. Trust me, Father Flynn, I will. You have no right to act on your own. You have taken vows, obedience being one. You answer to us. You have no right to step outside the church. I will step outside the church. If that's what needs to be done, though the door should shut behind me, I will do what needs to be done. Though I'm damned to hell. You should understand that, or you will mistake me. Now, did you give Donald Miller wine to drink? Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And per the region's laws and standards at this current time, Tom and I are an appropriate distance away. I would say about 30 miles, but that's just a guess. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature or a play that we've both read and we determine whether it is worthy of its reputation and should it actually be called required reading. I am Stella leading you today and with me again a socially appropriate distance away is my friend Tom Panneries. If you're if you're at home it's more like six miles. I don't is know it you, really? Yeah well it's six miles from my house to the uh the nearby shopping center and i know you're not that far away from that so so it's six miles from your no it is not i put it i'm i'm here i'm gonna plug it into google maps (laughs) why does it take so long then it takes like 15 minutes because of the lights 
Oh my gosh, yeah. six miles. It's a, it's a 20 minute drive. No, it's eight, sorry, 8.2 miles, 8.2 okay. miles, but it's a 20 minute drive. Wow, well, I could yeah, run to, to your to house. The barrack, to Barracks Road, yeah. Interesting. Okay, I've always thought it was longer. So there we are. It's still an appropriate distance away from each other though. Yeah. Uh, yes. So welcome. Yes. Hi. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, it's been a weird time, but I think with all this crazy stuff, it is to keep to some. It's good to keep to some regularity, and I think having these moments of interaction and having podcasts also come out on a schedule, I think is is good for people to keep keep their spirits up. I mean, not to yeah. like pump our podcasts up really high, but I think it's good that we are keeping to a routine and pretending, you know, or having some sort of normalcy. Yeah, no, that that's really, really important, and uh, and and I definitely feel that way. So, and I'm so I'm glad we're I'm glad we're still up for doing this and, and still doing, doing it. We we certainly have the time to read now. <laughs> we sure do. I mean, Tom and I are currently in distance learning, or I guess on our end teaching mode. Yeah. And for me, you know, my plans I'm planned out for the next two weeks I'll have to start again now that we know our schools are shut down through the end of the year but I basically yeah I wake up and I turn on my computer waiting for you know any sort of communication some days I'll have to grade I didn't have any today but I'm halfway through war and peace people and uh, (laughs) I so I've been reading I've been you know watching some things and then been playing Resident Evil 2 which is interesting because it used to be fantasy but now it's like oh that's a little closer to reality than I would like um, but yeah it's it's weird it's weird time mm-hmm. yeah I, I am not taking on a big novel like that <laughs> um, I read the novel that I've chosen for the next episode which I'll okay. reveal at the end of the episode uh, but I'm currently in the I'm I'm missing baseball, so I'm currently reading a book oh. about baseball. Uh, specifically, it's it's about the 1999-2000 New York Mets. So it's that that's that's that. And I have I have like a stack of four or five or twenty or fifty. You know, like I have the the yeah. ongoing stack that I don't have to go and um, seek out in order to to purchase. You know, I don't have to go and buy anything to yeah. to read from from my to my want to read list on goodreads which is what i'm what what you're currently doing i had this sneaking suspicion that the library would close down at some point i was very worried about Mm -hmm. this i didn't think it would close as early as it did but i had gone on and i thought i need to get these big tomes that are on my reading list so that i have like this plethora of pages to get through so war and peace i got from my school's library and then i put on the request list for our library system, The Shining, Demons mm. by Dostoevsky, and Ulysses by James Joyce. I thought, let's knock these Why? guys out <laughs> because it's on my list. I must. And so then it shut down like the day after, a couple days after, and I didn't get any of them. Thanks, thanks to Tom, I now have The mm-hmm. Shining, so I'm borrowing that from him. But yes. yeah, I'll just have to you know, seek out ones. I mean, I have books that I have yet to read in my apartment, but they're not on my list. My goal this year was, you know, to finish on the list. So Mm -hmm. there's always, I guess, the Kindle, but I don't like to read as, uh, you know, books on my Kindle. It's more for comics and stuff. So I'll just have to make do with what I have. I have a bunch of books on my Kindle. And um, what's helpful is that because my wife and I are on, uh, we're on the same Prime membership, mm-hmm. so we're considered because we're considered a household. Uh, they there is a sharing ability 
with Amazon, where if you're in the same household, um, you can share books back and forth. So the books that she got for Christmas, if I was interested in reading them, for instance, or anything she's downloaded or anything I've downloaded, we can read each other's books. So I, yeah, so, so I have, I have a few piled up in my Kindle, but yeah, and I, and I actually went to my school library as well and took out about like two or three books yeah. on the way out. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, well, we'll see, we'll see how these things go, but Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if they ever get them back. <laughs> and, oh, that's true. Yeah. They extended our library's due dates to April 6th, but I wonder yeah, if mm. they're just going to keep pushing it. So I guess we'll see. Yeah. I wish they would do like a curve, like a grab and go service for the mm-hmm. library. Like you would tell them, hey, I'm, I'm going to pick, because they have that drive through window and just use Well, they that. do, and that's for yeah. holds. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'd be curious as to why they're not doing that unless, unless they felt that they just need to close altogether since they're like almost very similar to like a public school type of thing. Uh, and I was thinking as the last thought here that you mentioned baseball not being on. I, of all the sports, that one's probably the one that's practicing social distancing the most. Mm-hmm. If you think about the layout on the field and everything. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But yeah, crazy times here. But here we are, and we're going to talk about a play that has a cultural impact but not the current of what's happening with, with COVID. And it was short, so it is not a mm-hmm. long-winded one. So I think this will be good for people if they need a break from some of the longer ones we've been doing. And it is Doubt, yes, a parable, which was a play that I decided to pick. Is this our second play? No, this is our fourth. Cause yeah, we, we did had, the Boss Menagerie, yep. Julius Caesar. Doll's House. Doll's House. And then I don't think we've done any other. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk a bit about Shanley and then Doubt itself, which is kind of wrapped up in his history, and then I will give the plot synopsis, and then we'll get going. Okay, so Shanley was born as, I mean, you could kind of hear from his name, I feel like, into an Irish-American family in the Bronx in New York City. His mother worked as a telephone operator and his father was a meat packer, and the neighborhood Shanley grew up in was considered very rough. His academic career did not begin well, but ultimately he graduated from New York University with honors. And in his program bio for the Broadway production of Doubt, a parable, he mentions that he was, quote, thrown out of St. Helena's kindergarten, banned from St. Anthony's hot lunch program, and expelled from Cardinal Spellman High School, end quote. He was heavily influenced by one of his first teachers, Sister Margaret McGinty, on whom he based the character of Sister James in his play Doubt. While at Cardinal Spellman High School, he saw two school productions that influenced him, The Miracle Worker and Cyrano de Bergerac. After his freshman year at New York University, Shanley was put on academic probation, <laughs> this guy. Uh, he then enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, serving in a stateside post during the Vietnam War. Following his military service, he wrote a novel, then burned it, and returned to the university with the help of the GI Bill and supporting him, by supporting himself with a series of jobs, like an elevator operator, a house painter, a furniture mover, locksmith, and bartender. He graduated from New York University. Get this. So he went 
went from probation to valedictorian in 1977. He is the author of more than 23 plays, which have been translated and performed around the world, including 80 productions a year in North America, and he has often directed his own productions. He has also written for film. His second film, Moonstruck, from 1987, starring Nicolas Cage and Cher, won three Academy Awards, including one for his screenplay. In 1990, Shanway directed his script of Joe vs. the Volcano. Shanway also wrote two songs for the movie Marooned Without You and The Cowboy Song, which appeared in that film. He wrote the screenplay for the film Congo in 95, which was based on the Michael Crichton book. His play Doubt a Parable ran on Broadway from March 31st, 2005 to July 2nd, 2006 and won four 2005 Tony Awards, including Best Play, the Drama Desk Award, including Outstanding Play and the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Shanley directed the 2008 version, which starred Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, and Viola Davis. I highly recommend it. The screenplay was nominated for an Academy Award and the film won the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Screenplay, written directly for the screen. Doubt, a parable, is featured in The Fourth Wall, a book of photographs by Amy Arbus, for which Stanley was also in the foreword, or wrote the foreword, rather. And then in 2012, he actually wrote the libretto for an opera version of Doubt, a Parable, which premiered at the Minnesota Opera in January 2013 with music by Douglas J. Cuomo. Until then, his experience with opera was not extensive. He had attended a few performances and had listened to recordings. And as he worked on the libretto using many lines that come directly from the play, he describes that his enthusiasm for the form grew. So just to give you a sense of him, as well as Doubt woven in there, that there's an opera version of Doubt. So thank you to Wikipedia for the biography, and I think, as as terrible it may sound, I think I got the plot synopsis from Great Saver, (laughs) which, you know, let's hope none of our students listen to this. Okay, in 1964... This is the plot synopsis. In 1964, many changes were coming to the Catholic Church and society. A charismatic, progressive, forward-thinking priest, Father Flynn, takes an interest in a young African-American student at the local parochial school. Sister Aloysius Bovier, principal of St. Nicholas School, takes a cynical and suspicious view of Father Flynn's interest in that young boy, Donald Mueller. She seems to particularly dislike Father Flynn for his open-minded, compassionate, and reformist character as exemplified in his sermons concerning the nature of certainty and truth in which he repeatedly uses the parables to teach his congregation. As Father Flynn states, doubt can be a bond as powerful and sustaining as certainty. The nature of moral certainty, the actions and consequences that arise from that certainty, form the theme of the play. Sister James, an eighth grade teacher, an eighth grade teacher, is drawn to the conflict between (laughs) Sister Aloysius and Father Flynn when she tells Sister Aloysius that Father Flynn is Donald Mueller's protector from bullying in the school. Further, she shares her concern that she saw Donald coming from a one-on-one meeting with Father Flynn in the rectory, looking frightened and smelling of wine. Sister Aloysius immediately believes she knows what is happening sexual abuse. She decides knowing that the powerful hierarchy of the church will only protect the priest and not the child to take justice upon herself. Her conservative well-meaning certainty collides with the priest's equally well-meaning certainty. Hmm. 
Alarmed by Sister Aloysius's distrustful and harsh treatment of students and dislike of any progressive or compassionate ideas, Sister James attempts to dismiss her own doubt about Father Flynn as Sister Aloysius directly confronts him with her accusations. Father Flynn vehemently denies any wrongdoing. His story is that he caught Donald drinking sacristy wine and was protecting him from further harsher punishment. Sister James is relieved and reassured of Father Flynn's innocence, but Sister Aloysius doesn't believe his story. Sister Aloysius then meets with Donald's mother, Mrs. Mueller, who is proud that the priest has taken such an interest in her son and refuses to believe the accusations. However, as she leaves, she hints that Donald may be gay and that his father will punish him for that at home. Father Flynn confronts Sister Aloysius and tells her that he will have her removed from her position if she doesn't stop pushing her accusations of him. In return, she tells him that she called his previous parish and got confirmation from them of his past bad behavior. She insists that he immediately resign or she will publicly expose him. Her blackmail is effective and he resigns. Father Flynn immediately calls the bishop. He receives a promotion and a new position as pastor of another local parochial school. Though apparently victorious, Sister Aloysius reveals to Sister James that she lied about the phone call to Father Flynn's previous parish. Without proof, Sister Aloysius now harbors misgivings about her certainty in Father Flynn's guilt and even questions the faith that drove her to threaten him and drive him out of the parish. But she attempts to justify her actions, saying that Father Flynn's resignation was the final proof of his guilt. Both Father Flynn and Sister Aloysius hold fast to their certainty, particularly in their confrontations with one another, while Sister James and Mrs. Mueller suffers the uncertainties of seeing both sides of the issue. However, by the end of the play, Sister Aloysius and Sister James, along with the readers, are left with no answers, only doubt. <sighs> okay. It's a tense little 50-page play. Yeah. And I think I've seen it performed, and I was trying to remember if there was an intermission, but I feel like there wasn't. I feel like it was just straight on through it, but I could be wrong. But anyways, uh, so speaking of that, what is your history with this play? I'd never seen the movie. I was familiar with the movie, at least. You know, I remember when it came out, but I never actually saw it. Um, it was probably on my to-watch list, and I never got around to it. Uh, so this is my first exposure to the actual play in, in any, like reading it through in any context. I my first experience with it was seeing the play. I remember seeing it with my mother. Probably saw it at the art house film that's down in Roanoke, where where my parents live. And I mean, wonderful cast. I, I don't think they could have casted. It casted it better because i mean philip seymour hoffman may he rest mm-hmm. in peace just a, an amazing actor and then to have you have to have someone great go up against him and to have meryl street as sister aloysius and then very innocent sister james played by amy adams i think was uh great as well so that was my first experience and then i went to new york city i used to go with a friend's son um, that's kind of like my brother, just so you don't think it's like a weird thing. But uh, I remember it. Well, I just, you know, I need to explain that. But we, uh, yeah, so we used to go to the drama bookstore, which has since closed, but I think it's going to be reopened again. And I remember one of the plays he got one time was Doubt, and so I borrowed it and I, I read it. And then, funnily enough, when he was in Cedarville University, he got the role of father flynn so i got to see him in real time do that so uh i guess i got all pieces of it you know i got the film the play and then actually seeing the play so 
it's been good. It's been good to revisit it. I think at this point in time too. So, did you like this play, Tom? I did. It is a tense, yeah, tense play, but it is it is really really well written, uh, and and I I I liked how well written it was because the subject matter is some, not something that you like, you know. But I, yes. I did. I was like, I know. I, I I thought this was outstanding in terms of of how well it's written. Yeah, I agree. Very intense. And then there are certain, and I mean, plays, I think they're, they're deep or can be deep in several different ways, but there are just certain lines and quotes from certain characters that like I've been thinking about and gosh, what, what is the intention behind that? Like the one time when Sister Aloysius is saying like to do something right, sometimes you have to step farther away from God. And so I've been like mm. working through, what does that mean, Sister Aloysius? But just, and the parables that Father Flynn uses just... I think those are really interesting um, stories and, and sermons. Yeah, so it's it's really well done. I very much enjoyed it. And I think it's the perfect length because I think any longer, it would have been like you've you've lengthened this conflict for too long. I think it would be unnecessary, mm-hmm. but I think it's the right amount of time of this intensity. It builds, it builds, it builds, and then it disfu- diffuses, but then you're feeling uncomfortable at the end with the, with the results. So I think it's great. Yeah, I think you're right. I think any any longer, or if it was like a two hour play, like on the yeah. level of like you know, Caesar or whatever, it you and if you're that intense for the whole time, you risk burning your audience out. You know. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, we'll start with. I do want to talk about the preface, which is kind of funny, but the preface mm-hmm. is actually written by Shanley himself. So there are some things that we'll we'll talk about there. But we'll actually start with. The parable, since it is, of course, doubt a parable. So M. H. Abrams, in his glossary of literary terms, defines a parable as, quote, a very short narrative about human beings presented so as to stress the tacit analogy or parallel with a general thesis or lesson that the narrator is trying to bring home to his or her audience, end quote. So Shanley, of course, subtitles his play as a parable. What is the general thesis or lesson that Shanley is trying to convey in this play? I'm, I, you know, I struggle with this because I was trying to figure out, because I know he is definitely putting forth the ambiguity of the entire situation on some level, or else he would not have named the play Doubt. But I wonder if he's making some sort of statement of doing what is right or what you think is right versus adhering to the power structure that's in place by this under the system in which you you exist mm. uh because there certainly is that in the play you know the idea that that you know you even mentioned it in your synopsis that you know she can't there's only so much she can do because they'll protect him they won't protect the victim and that's not the right thing to do so Um, Is it a statement about how sometimes you have to ignore the institution and follow the morality of the situation because your institution is acting in an immoral fashion? Um, But I'm but I'm not entirely sure that I'm correct or if I'm being or if I'm simplifying it too much. Yeah, I've I've thought about this uh, a lot today, and I wonder if part of it is sort of. the idea of certainty or truth. And I think there's a question later on about relative versus absolute and you yeah. know what the difference is and how if depending on which truth you're looking for, how it could be damaging to others or another situation. Mm-hmm. But also just with situation, like this particular situation, 
why it's so complicated is for whatever reason he can't get kicked out kicked out which a lot of it is I think the sort of the gender there's a gender issue there but it's almost like do you keep him there (laughs) and have that damage where you can oversee it or potentially do as much as you can to prevent it or do you pass him on and now it's out of your hands but he could still be victimizing others which again we don't know about father flynn necessarily but i don't know if there's something about that just that situations are not exactly black and white which she at one point uses that term yeah it's it's a tough yeah i kind of have been thinking i still don't know that i necessarily have an answer for this particular one but i just feel like he looks at he examines human nature in a particular way but in a, a very specific environment and within a vacuum but i mean you could take this out and put it in potentially another situation and see how people would deal with it depending on certainty versus doubt or relative truth versus absolute truth but yeah so yeah i i don't know that i necessarily have a good answer for this one either but i i like what you have to say about the about that going against the institution Mm-hmm. Okay, so this in his preface, he actually dedicates the play to the many orders of Catholic nuns who have devoted their lives to serving others. So this is interesting. When I read it, I thought, oh, how nice. But do you think that he's being genuine or do you think this is ironic? Why do you think he would dedicate the play to them? I think he... I think he's I read it as coming from a genuine place because the only characters I mean granted there's only really three characters in the play uh, who work for the church the, the boy's mother being kind of a fourth but she doesn't work for the church and they're trying to protect him more than even his mother is mm-hmm. even sister Aloysius who is very hard line rule following type of person eventually does put protecting the kid above you know the the rules of the play the rules Mm -hmm. so to speak and so he she and she struggles to remember her calling in a sense at least through parts of this play um you know because she's been so used to just kind of essentially being in charge and this situation comes up and she has a real quandary so and and it is is in the uh, you know the the question is am I going to protect this child when I know that those whom to whom I could report this would not protect the child it would protect the the abuser mm-hmm. so yeah so I think he is being genuine. I think so, too. I I think there are certainly, and we've seen so many portrayals, I'm sure, of hard-lined nuns and mother superiors and things like that. But Mm -hmm. given the fact that she is protective over the child, and who knows, there there might be other motives behind there. I, I do think that she is trying to protect Donald, but I also think that she doesn't like Father Flynn, so she wants to get him out of there as well. Just with the care of Sister James and how Sister James is portrayed as, as so sweet and, and loving to all the children and innocent. And then also if you just take a step back and think that this is a an actual problem that happens and it's been going on for a while and it still is unfortunately going on. Just to think that in place of that there are probably this this 
army of non or an army of nuns that are, you know, fighting against it or trying to protect their mm -hmm. parishioners and people and everything. So I do think that that is more respectful rather than ironic. Yeah. Oh, uh, so this next question is interesting. I've also been thinking about this one. So in the preface, sorry, we're all in this preface here, but there's a lot <laughs> going on here. Shanley actually criticizes the fact that, quote, we are living in a culture of extreme advocacy of confrontation, of judgment, and a verdict, end quote. In what sense might the play itself be considered an attempt to remedy this cultural trend? I don't know if I, I... I agree that he's pointing out something, but there has been good that has come from this culture. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to take his criticism and completely agree with it. Mm -hmm. I do know that it's almost like there's two sides to this culture there are the people who are the real activists in the culture who will not only confront judge and render verdicts but they will go about fighting for whatever justice needs to be done whether it's prosecution or changing a law or whatever but then there's another side which i think is uh very appropriately very appropriate to criticize which is the sort of just lobbing stuff from a distance lobbing your accusations from a distance and never really going beyond that and, and granted this predates our current social media um, atmosphere but you know that i think is a valuable criticism to make or a valid sorry valid criticism to make at the people who really just pop off comments and never really do anything and and they they make they they render the verdict in the court of public opinion before they uh before they have the chance to really explore it so i think he's trying to argue for nuance and i think he's trying to argue for complexity in our critical thinking of situations i don't know if it's phrased exactly the way it should be but i'm not a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. So <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it is 2020 right now and he was wrote that preface in 2005. And so yeah. much has happened that, you know, if you think about it, just with all the getting, you know, the cop versus teen violence um, mm -hmm. and then obviously the Me Too and Time's Up movement and equal pay and equal rights and, and all of that stuff. So much has changed that I would also probably disagree right now with this. I think besides your lobbying accusations from a distance issue that one may take, I also wonder if potentially he could be talking about what if this extreme advocacy is for this one person or maybe this one people group, but ignoring everybody else. So yeah. you're only focused on something, but you you're saying like no, you know, no to everybody else. So like yes, women's rights and you know equal pay, but I don't care about immigrants, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that could be potentially one of those issues where if you're going to advocate 
advocate, you need to advocate for a wider group of people. You need to advocate for humankind, really. So I don't know if that's potentially what he did, because I feel like Sister Aloysius, in her throwing that grenade, I'm going to keep using that now, I like it, in you know <laughs> having that accusation towards Father Flynn and everything that went with that, I feel like in the wake of all that was Sister James. And Sister James is also a victim in this play, I think, for Sister Aloysius. And I don't, I don't think Sister Aloysius really recognizes any of that as the play goes on. So I would mm-hmm. think maybe that's something that he could be talking about as well. But again, you know, what whatever his time or his mind frame was in 2005, I think if he were, you know, if we were to ask him now what he thinks about that, I feel like he might change his perspective. But who knows? Yeah, he might change his perspective or he might, he might add something to that statement mm-hmm. to yeah. – clarify to expand upon it i feel that maybe yeah. perhaps it's just too simply stated and it needs some uh it needs some more elaboration agreed yep okay so we'll move out of the preface now he does mm-hmm. talk about uncertainty and certainty but i think instead of using shanley's words we'll actually uh, look at father flynn so in one of his or as father flynn is talking he actually argues that skepticism can provide a sense of community that is every bit as nourishing as faith and he actually ends his first sermon by saying that doubt can be a bond as powerful and sustaining as certainty do you agree or disagree with this particular statement that he makes in his sermon i think it can I think it can be as a powerful bond, and I think it can be sustaining, but I don't think that means it's necessarily always good. Yeah. Um, Because sometimes the doubt that you have is unfounded or you're being let on by somebody, uh, you know, because you believe there's a conspiracy or something, you know, you doubt something that uh, has been proven or you, you know, or, 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 or you are trying to, you're willfully ignorant, but then there are times where your doubt leads to positive change in the world or something or some sort of justice because you followed up on it because it just did not feel right in some way. So, yeah. So mm-hmm. I think there's two sides to it. Yeah, I agree that the fact that if there is doubt, I think as long as you're not simmering in that doubt and and that's just where you reside but you actually are maybe attempting to work through it like why does this feel uncomfortable why is there doubt and then it could potentially lead you to a truth I think that is what makes it I mean it would make you stronger and I think also sustaining as well Um, Mm -hmm. with the people yeah that's interesting because I do feel you know if I have hesitancy about something like maybe I don't know an administrator has put forward something and I'm like you know I'm not sure what is this to and you are able if you're to find someone else then it it feels good like oh it's not just me (laughs) that feels this hesitancy and then you can kind of work out how could we fix this so it can become it goes from an issue potentially a negative thing because I feel like doubt isn't the most positive sounding thing, you know, with this connotation, but you can potentially work towards something that would make you stronger and the situation stronger. Yeah. Um, but again, like you, yeah, I think if you just stay, remain in your doubt, I think that's an issue. Like, d- wouldn't you say that if you just remain or, 
your doubt remains with you, it almost becomes cynical. Do you think that yeah. makes sense? Is like, yeah, okay. Yeah, because skepticism can be healthy, but cynicism, you know, and some sort of cynicism towards certain things can be healthy as well. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it just kind of metastasizes and it just eventually does become just outright cynicism and just downright, you know, defeatism even as well. So I think you're correct. Continuing on with this idea of doubt, in his preface again, sorry, Shanley actually takes one of his epigraphs from Ecclesiastes. He says, in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. And Sister James actually echoes this sentiment when she admits near the end of the play that she, quote, can't sleep at night anymore. Everything seems uncertain to me, end quote. So... Potentially ignorance is bliss. Who knows? Uh, do you think gaining experience with its attendant anxieties, is that worth sacrificing your innocence, which is unfortunately what happens to Sister James? Yes, because that is essential to your growth and your own humanity. You know, I mean, it's when does innocence pitch over into naivete? You know, that's 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 a question that we could ask. And I feel that. Yeah, you you gain experience and you gain anxiety with experience. I know this firsthand. But at the same time, you are opened up to different perspectives and you are you gain wisdom with that anxiety. And the wisdom is the reward. It's not necessarily all great, you know, um, because the world isn't perfect, as we have seen. But at the same time, I feel... Uh, you know, you feel but it's 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 a there is a victory in, in being a wiser person because of your experiences and being able to learn from those experiences. And that's part of part of what makes humanity what it is. Do you agree with that with Sister James? I think so. Yeah, um, I think the anxiety is existing because it has to because it's just essentially cognitive dissonance you know she there's two things that are opposing and she's having anxiety as a result of it it's also very fresh in terms of when it's happened you know we could catch up with her sometime down in the future perhaps she can tell you what she learned from the experience perhaps it's the lesson has not been received just as yet because it's so raw so, but no, I, I do, I do think that if it doesn't apply to her now, it will apply to her eventually. I feel bad. <laughs> well, it's just interesting to think, would she have thought about looking? And I think the answer is no, because it's sort of written there in the play, but I don't know that she would have ever accused or brought any of that about Father Flynn to Sister Aloysius had Sister Aloysius not in their first meeting that we see made some sort of comment to watch out for him, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, in that case, I think it is it is good. I think that was a growth because she could, I mean, bad stuff could have been happening under her nose. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the anxiety is partially that, that she's now she's ever alert. Uh, it's also because, you know, she accused this man that may or may not be innocent. And she kind of feels like he's innocent towards the end. My only thing against this uh, about you know ignorance is bliss is that I feel like her character was changed as a teacher because it just seemed mm. like she took so much joy but then Sister Aloysius really 
flipped that around yeah. and uh, we can talk about that but just it, it changed her as a teacher I think her nature as a teacher and then she didn't enjoy it as and I don't think she was doing anything wrong you know with how it was described it was just Sister mm-hmm. Aloysius has this idea of what it is to be a teacher and then Sister Jane's wasn't necessarily following that but I think she's a, a people pleaser and so is trying to plus Mother Superior um, potentially uh, so that's that's the only reason I would maybe disagree with it. But I do agree that, you know, growth and everything. But, you know, there are certain things like kids, they say s- certain things at school. <laughs> I'm like, what does that even mean? So sometimes uh-huh. I try to be up on the hip lingo because when I say it, I say it really dryly or really mm-hmm. unhiply on purpose and then they get embarrassed. But other times when thing. you find things – yeah, see, it's fun. Uh, but other th- times it's you, – you go on you know, Urban Dictionary or something and you think, oh, man, I wish I hadn't have known that. <laughs> uh, so that's the only time you – know, me personally, I, I think it's a good idea not to, not to Google things. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about the, the teaching thing. Sister Aloysius tells Sister James that, quote, the best teachers do not perform. They cause their students to perform. How Mm -hmm. does Sister Aloysius expect Sister James to perform her duties and responsibilities? That sounds like something I heard in like a professional development seminar. Um, (laughs) Doesn't it sound like some sort of thing you'd see somebody like some inspirational quote they put on a wall? I always see the, the thing that struck me too, but the, but one of the inherent conflicts between her, the two women, and then and then um, um, with Father uh, Flynn was that her and Father Flynn represent a more modern aspect of Catholicism, whereas Sister Aloysius is the old guard. Yeah. And this takes place in 1964, which is, and I, I did some research because I had to remember, and I am not Catholic. Um, I did not know what Vatican II was until I went to college at a Catholic college. Um, Catholic, Vatican II was a uh, ecumenical conference that took place over the course of about six or eight years or something in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And it was the Catholics, like the popes and the cardinal, the pope and the cardinals, getting together and really looking at how to move the what to do with the church now that the second world war was over Mm. and Pope Leo had passed and, and they were looking at what they, you know, what should they reform? You know, what can change? So this is where they introduced things such as the idea that the Pope is fallible, then acknowledgement, a a formal acknowledgement of beliefs in human rights, democracy, and and calling anti-Semitism a sin, which was big concerning the, Catholic churches, I don't know if it's, I don't the I can't remember, not culpability, but like the sort of kind of looking the other way at the Holocaust. There's, there's a role they play when you're when you're talking about the the Holocaust and the Catholic Church, and it's not it's not good. Catholics can now pray with other denominations. So if if somebody who's Catholic was visiting a friend and went to your church, you're not Catholic. So they can pray there. It's okay. It's not being. It's not going against anything the Pope says. Um, it encouraged friendship with non-Christian faiths, and it used languages other than Latin. Mm. That last thing, 
I believe would be the sticking point for Sister Aloysius. She's very stead in her beliefs. So I was just kind of thinking about that, about how they kind of represent these two sides of this coin when it comes to, when this play takes place in 64 and Vatican II formally ended in 65. So this is right around the time all these things are coming out along and coming out. So there's a, there is an internal struggle within the church. And then of course you have the, uh, the, the the scandal that Father Flynn is, you know, accused of being part of. I think that because at least at the beginning of the, of the of the play that that Sister Aloysius would want Sister um, James to be more strict and to get the stuff out of them because she, perhaps she, perhaps to put it too simply, perhaps she would say that you're not supposed to be their friend, they're supposed to be their teacher and they will do the work for you. So, I mean, she's taking that sort of very old school, no pun intended, view of, of what you're supposed to do as a teacher. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. And, I, I'm uh, yeah. Yeah. I should, yeah, actually scroll to the, or get to that page. But it's interesting how she talks about her love of history. Mm -hmm. And then Sister Aloysius is saying, but wonder if I can find this. I'm not sure if I will, but I can at least say that she says if you, you know, that everyone can tell that you love history and you're sacrificing mm -hmm. other things for it, which is interesting. So I guess her performing almost is, I don't know. It's because I think when I'm up front teaching, I am to a certain, and they tell you, you know, all the, I'm sure you went through this and everything with um, the ed school, you know, yeah. you're not performing, but really you kind of are because yeah. my, the, the persona that I have in front of the classroom is completely different than my other persona. I have to be really exciting and excitable mm -hmm. because otherwise there's like no engagement or they don't care about what you're saying necessarily and then also kids can be really mean and rude and yeah. if you were to be yourself up there you would be an emotional basket case honestly because you would not be able to take the things that they say either to your face or behind your back so oh yeah so to a certain extent, I, I think we do have to perform. So what Sister Aloysius's idea of performing is, I don't know if that's like being, having a personality might be one of those things that Sister James really loves history. And so it shines through and then, you know, the kids get excited, but Sister Aloysius doesn't want that. She might just want sort of the facts and you just need to present the facts to them. And then they are the ones that put the output of like having these facts and then being able to, I don't know, do an essay or analyze where Whereas maybe she thinks James is doing all the hard work and she's doing all the output. But it just seems like she's taking a fun teacher and I think probably a good teacher that her students can get excited about subject matters and turning her into more of a robotic teacher mm. of more facts and discipline and less, I think, love of learning. That's, yeah. that's how I kind of see it. She'd be a good bureaucrat. That sort of bureaucratic <laughs> administrator who, yeah. like, would see what you're trying to do, but then one wonders why the uh, objective is not written on the board in the correct format. You know, that sort of that sort of thing. So maybe that's a little bit of her as well. You know, the sort of very much a procedural type of person. Yeah, I guess we'll get into sort of collecting of evidence by Sister Aloysius. Mm -hmm. So. What are some ways that she actually gathers her proof? What is her view on truth? 
And if you recall, Father Flynn actually reminds Sister Aloysius that, quote, even if you feel certainty, it is an emotion and not a fact. So how, yeah, so how she get her proof or how she go about investigating, I'll say, what is her view on truth? And then we could get personal if we want to, just to talk about, do you believe in absolute or relative truth? Because I think that's a big thing nowadays Mm -hmm. (laughs) to sound like an old person is, well, that's your truth. And so do you actually believe in that sort of thing? But we can, we can focus on the the sister Aloysius right now. I'm trying to remember what evidence she gathered (laughs) <laughs> and how she went about doing it. I'm, I'm flipping That's through the, the play thing, right now. It? I'm like, where, where was it? Yeah. Where was it? So I'm going to def- I'm going to deflect that back to you. Okay, I do know she talked to the guy gardener, right? She did talk to the gardener about, and I think there was something about the sacristy wine. I don't know if I'm going to be able to to find it potentially. And of course, she lies about calling his previous parishes and talking to sisters. Yeah. Oh, okay. All there it is, Mr. McGinn. Mm-hmm. I'm on page forty-six. Let's see here. All Mr. McGinn knows is the boy drank wine. He doesn't know how he came to drink of it. I think McGinn is in fact the um, the gardener slash the, yeah. the keeper about that. So there, yeah. So all for which is I think the point of this potentially is that it's all very spotty. A lot of the proof I would say also comes from her gut, and mm-hmm. that's like the certainty. Like she has this feeling inside, which is absolutely what Father Flynn I think gets to, and so everything else she's able to dabble around in. Oh, he got the wine, so that you know must be true. But how did he get the wine? Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, how he feels. How she felt about. Father Flynn to begin with, she already had an icky feeling about him. And then using that lie, which I think goes to that whole point of you got to take a step away from the Lord in order to find the truth or get closer to him. She uses that lie, but he acts so cagey and then ends up like having to back off and and actually leave, um, even though it was a lie. Uh, So I guess those are the ways. So I feel like her truth might more be relative to her than absolute because there aren't any there's not someone she didn't actually call the parish she didn't actually get that information and she doesn't know about the wine situation just that he drank it so that's and then you have mrs mueller who kind of adds some cloudy stuff in there uh because of you know uh donald needs a father figure his father beats him there might be something about donald that you know he might have homoerotic tendencies who knows uh which then you're like "Uh uh-oh what does that mean and she's okay with father flynn attending to him however you take that word so i feel like it's more relative to her and what she believes in her gut than absolute like yes father flynn did this and i know for a fact because i have all this stuff to prove it yeah because mrs mueller also has the um it's one of the things that that is brought up is the fact that uh donald is is black and um she's got him at that school and he's I believe the only black student at the school and she really wants him there because it's a much better school than the public school that he was supposed to be going to. So she's seeing the, she's kind of like sacrificing things now for the, what could come of this later on mm-hmm. in terms of his own success, yeah. um, which makes her more complicated. Plus it, it, he, he seems to be writing this play to try to keep it within the context of its time and not mm-hmm. applying too many of the 
um, value judgments of the mid 2000s. So the idea that that she might do that is not far fetched. It's not right per se, but it's something that I think we could see. You know, you could you could see happening, and I think that that's important. Yeah, her the, and and uh, the thing that makes me believe her sister Aloysius is the fact that. There's something about her that makes me trust her gut instinct that she is that intuitive to once she saw like had a shred of possible evidence or had a had an incident. She knew and she can't always explain it, but she did knew. But the, the evidence becomes hard to collect, mainly because she is in a patriarchy and does not wield as much power as the men who would readily protect one of their own. Yeah, she's got to fight a bit more. Yeah, one of the so I'm on forty eight. Flynn says you have no proof. You know, sorry, you have not the slightest proof of anything. And mm-hmm. she has, says I, but I have my certainty. And armed with that, I will go to your last parish and the one before that, if necessary. I will find a parent, Father Flynn. Trust me, I will. So I mean, she's ready to go. But if only she had done that, I think <laughs> groundwork beforehand. But it seemed like she just wanted him gone asap. Mm-hmm. Well, she stands up to him, but she also essentially confines by um, by saying they wouldn't sell him out. Like, you know, it's, she knows that the task she has in front of her if she does go to the previous parish because they'll probably defend him before they defend the kid. Yeah. But she's not going to she's not going to show her hand there in front of him. No. So speaking about the gardener, uh, mm-hmm. she actually in a garden scene, which I think about. There's a, I've only seen two South Park episodes in my life and they were both about, they were a parody on Game of Thrones. And so anytime, I don't know the characters, but the little guy with the beanie on, the, the boobeanie, oh, he would walk through the Cartman. garden with some, yeah, he would walk through the garden with somebody mm-hmm. uh, and it happened multiple times in order to do some sort of conference uh, of important battle strategies. But anyway, so there's, there's an important battle strategy conference and she actually points out to Sister James that... I think it was just Sister James, that the gardener pruned this bush, this is a quote, which was the mm-hmm. right thing to do, but he neglected to protect it from the frost, end quote. Uh, uh, interesting statement. How do you think this applies to Sister Aloysius's own attempts to protect her students? And why do you think the action of pruning itself might be symbolic in the play? On some level, it's that, you know, when they when they get rid of Flynn at the end, he's just transferred elsewhere. They they move the problem. Yeah. Um, so but not really protect what's at the root or not really address what's at the root. Yeah. So that that was the that was, you know, in other words, the systemic change that needs to happen. What really is rotting it from the root um, is not being addressed because they can pass along those things and kind of put them put them away and and prune that you know so that's the symbolism i got out of mm-hmm. i got out of it it's in terms no, of i her. agree yeah i also wonder something i mean this might be too one to one or two on the nose but just mm-hmm. thinking about nature itself since frost is an act of nature mm-hmm. and that would certainly be something to address with the individual priests or whomever you know is the the abuser in that situation like what is it at the the root cause of that of that abuse there Mm-hmm. Um, to get down to their nature. But I think that connects with yours as well. Yeah. So we, of course, know that our legal system says innocent until proven guilty. Yes. Do you think Sister Aloysius abides by this? Ooh. I 
don't think she is when she brings it up, but it's very possible that when it is brought up to her, her first instinct is to go with that. And then upon thinking and listening to her instinct and whatever, she proves it guilty to herself. So maybe she starts with that, but eventually decides what his that he is guilty as a result of her actions in the play. I think, yeah, I think it's clear she has suspicions about him. I actually want to talk about some distinct items of mm-hmm. his character and person. But I, I feel like she's got a suspicion because obviously she put Sister James on his tracks, but then she's got to back it up. So I think yeah. she does think he's guilty. But she needs to prove that he's guilty. So it's kind of a weird thing, like guilty. But yeah. Proven guilty. So yeah. suspiciously guilty, but I will prove it guilty. What do you think is more dig- uh, dangerous in this situation, presuming innocence or presuming guilt? Just looking at this sort of specific situation. This specific situation, I think presuming innocence of the accused can lead to the problem or continue the problem because of the way you had all our knowledge of systemic cover-ups and and victim blaming, you know, um, then granted I I am one person who tends to believe a victim when they come forward and, Uh you know, and, and want, want the, the person accused to, you know, present the evidence that they're not, if they, if they claim that they're innocent. So, which, makes me sound hypocritical considering what our legal system is built on but the presumption of innocence um, on a on a plaintiff can be damaging in that it it does set up like i said like blaming of the victim and making victims afraid to come forward especially when they're as innocent as children yeah i i agree i think the only thing that you know presuming guilt the only thing potentially that is on the line is reputation. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly something that Father Flynn, I think, does decry. He's like, what about my, my name? He do- does talk about that. Yeah. And I know that we've – I feel like there may have – I only know of one potential case that may have been, like, wrongful. But all the other ones have been, like, there's actual mm-hmm. evidence and, and, you know, the people that have come out. I'm talking about, like, Me Too and, and all yeah, the things yeah. that have happened. And so – and that person seems like he was able to, to get back his, his name because people vouch for him and everything. So I think if if you've proven yourself, if your character is proven – and people also can vouch for you. I think you are able to get over that particular stumbling block. Mm-hmm. Um, but also sometimes that that smear might stay with you. But I think in this, because there are kids at stake, you know, and victims at stake, that you kind of do have to rush in as Sister Aloysius does in, in order to. And she, I'm not saying that she does the 100% right thing, but I, I do recognize that she's trying to protect her parish and she's trying to protect Donald in particular. Yeah. There are some, let's see if I can find this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we know that Sister Aloysius, she favors fountain pens <laughs> that uh, must be dipped in yeah. ink rather than ballpoint pens. And we actually find out that Father Flynn writes with a ballpoint pen. He has long fingernails. He likes sugar because he took, I think, three in his tea. Mm-hmm. And he actually suggests secular music for the Christmas pageant. So 
what sort of idea do you think what well how about two things so what idea do you get about father flynn from these descriptions and then what idea do you think sister aloysius gets or perhaps is cemented about father flynn from these descriptors i get the feeling that he is uh, i don't know what the long fingernails have to do with anything uh (laughs) but the ballpoint pen the secular music especially there's um contemporariness to it that probably frightens her that's what i was getting from when i was talking about you know like the modern the struggle of the modern versus the old in the catholic church at this time that's where that's another place where it came up for me not knowing what the sugar and the long nails have to do with anything um at first i thought she might be she might be being like homophobic but then this whole play does not come across as that and i don't know why he would i don't think he would put something like that at the at that point in the play uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if, if, unless she feels that he is unkempt. You know that that sort of idea that the kids these days with their hair, get the long hair, and they're you know that maybe there's something to that. You know that that she feels that he's you know not grooming himself the way a priest should. He does not represent the collar the way the priest should, or something like that. Interesting, but remember during his little basketball speech, he talks about always have clean fingernails, young man. Hmm. Yeah, so at least his his fingernails are clean, even Mm -hmm. though they're long. Yeah, it's interesting because I personally uh, don't like long fingernails. Oh, God, I hate long fingernails. Yeah, they can have like some sort of cuticle, I guess. Is that what you would call that? Yeah. But I, yeah, it wouldn't have to be long. So there is something I... I don't know if sinister. Well, because you think about some of these like Disney villains that have the, they're designed the, to have yeah. the pointed, like a big so bad I don't wolf know if type of thing. Yeah, is there some or Jafar? You know, I feel like he yeah. had some fingernails. So I don't know if there's something sinister about that. Perhaps with the sugar or glutton. Wait, you're not, you know, not ha- being temperate. Oh yeah, having three. But I completely agree with you about being contemporary, being hip, or at least reaching the culture that you're talking about. Because sometimes, mm-hmm. well, I think, you know, religion does need to bridge that gap. It can't be, and there are, you know, some people that obviously believe in the the monk situation and mm-hmm. trying to think of what his Benedict, sort of the Benedict principle of staying away and getting yeah. yourself from the world. But there's also something to be said about reaching out and you know reaching out to the world as well and the culture and so this is a way potentially to do that with the secular music that's not like hail satan but you know it's like frosty the snow well i think she said no to frosty the snowman but we wish you merry christmas i think she said okay too and the ballpoint pen you know is 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 another way of doing that too so i agree with you about the old guard versus contemporary but I know that in the past, long finger, it used to only be like the pinky, I think, mm. like way, way in the past, used to be long for snuff boxes because mm. they used to dip their pinky in and then, you know, oh. sniff it up there. Well, there you go. But Maybe. I don't think he's doing that with all 10 of his digits. Yeah, he's about two, and he's also about 10 years too early to for to be cocaine, so. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Mrs. Mueller. So mm-hmm. we should talk about her. Yes. She's the only character who comes from the outside of the school, and she has a conference with Sister Aloysius. How does Mrs. Mueller represent a more complex character than either Sister Aloysius or Father Flynn? 
I think, as I was saying earlier, her being black and the mother of a child who is the only black student there and who is in a situation now that could benefit him just academically in terms of his success. And she's complex because she has that grap that to grapple with. It's not just the, you know, she's presented with this so-called evidence of what's been going on. And she has the decision to make about, you know, how she is going to react. And, and it's, there's doubt in her mind that the accusations are real or she doesn't want them to be real because she thinks that her son is under the, she's under the impression that her son has a mentor, that things are going very, very well. So there's, there's a lot, I think, going on in her head, both rationalizing and kind of fighting with, with herself about what the nature of all this actually is. And she is the one person who is on both sides, mm. if you think about it. Because she – let me think about this a bit before – because I feel like what I'm saying is correct. But let me – because she's, she knows Donald's side to a certain extent of his home life. So that's mm. also a complexity because no one really knows what Donald's home life is. Uh, they're just concerned about is he bullied at school and that he's a black kid in an all-white school. And so she knows that side. She has a thought for why Father Flynn would be a potentially good influence. And I think she's hearing uh, Sister Aloysius' side of why this is probably not a good idea. But she's not listening to it because she's like, it's just until graduation and all of that stuff. So I think she knows that it's this is almost a stopgap. And if he can survive, it'll be okay. Um, so I feel like she almost bridges the gap between Sister Aloysius and Father Flynn. But she's mm. also a very frustrating character to a certain extent. And I understand. I mean, this is obviously not 2020 when this was happening. It was 1964, I cool, think. Yeah. And so she was in, she is in, I guess we'll do present tense, a tricky position. But just to hear what she's saying and that there's a lack of protection for her son was really interesting. And I guess I can't fully say that because obviously she's trying to get him through to a good high school. So there is love yeah. for her son and she doesn't want her husband to beat him. But at the same time, she's like knowingly putting him in a situation with a predator. If that predator is an actual predator and she feels like father Flynn is caring for him and Donald likes him. So it's okay. But it's just, it's like frustrating, but you also have empathy for her because you like understand where she's coming from. So mm -hmm. I also think there's the complexity there with like, she's in this tough position that none of the other characters are in. And uh, she's saying these wild things that if you step back, you're like, what, what's happening? Or I guess if you only look at it closely, you think, why is she saying this? But if you step back, there's so much more as well. So I do feel like she bridges the gap between these extreme characters of Father Flynn and Sister Aloysius and then just her own personal history and, and with Donald and everything is also very different too. And she's only in for one scene. So yeah. it's crazy how much of an impact she's able to make. Yeah, that's true. Oy. Okay, so we're winding down, so let me know if there's anything that I didn't ask that you would like to go through. But I do want to talk about the conclusion, and then I want to ask you what you think about Father Flynn, whether you believe him or not. It's a tough one. So Sister Aloysius is equally torn by doubt as Sister James in the play's conclusion, but not for the same reason. What is the source of Sister Aloysius's doubt, and why does it torture her? 
I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at the last page here, and she says, you know, he left of his own volition, essentially, and he went to another school. She says, but if he had no such history, the lie wouldn't have worked, so that he confessed via resignation, yet she's she's going on things all circumstantial, so she is... So he's in another school somewhere else and doubting whether or not she did the right thing. But I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not getting at the core of this because it's it's confusing as to why she has. Yeah. Why she's so emotional at the end, other than the fact that she's got some sort of regret for what she did because it wasn't as cut and dry as she thought it was or something. What do you think? Yeah, this has actually sat with me since I saw the movie, because that's how it ends. It's just like, I have doubt. I have such doubt. Mm-hmm. And it's so unsettling, which is why I think it it makes a, a wonderful ending. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are two reasons potentially she could be doubting. Did she make a mistake because she had her certainty in her gut? But did she make a mistake? So that's one potential. But I think the stronger one is that did she... And I mean a mistake in her accusation, sorry, of Mm -hmm. Father Flynn. Like, did he really do it? Or her second mistake, potentially. Did she make a mistake in having him go to another parish that now she can't? And now he's in a higher position, as we find out. So was that, did she do the right thing? And she could have kept him there at her parish and and watched over him. But now she, he is out of her area and in a higher position. So potentially with more people that he could victimize if he is in fact uh, a predator. So that would be my, my thing. Like, did she do the wrong thing or was she right in, in everything she did? Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah. Okay. So my last one, were there any other uh, or any other questions? No, no, I think we're, we're getting there. Okay. Do you think father Flynn was in fact, or is in fact a predator, and these are all rightful charges against him. And let's just say with Donald Mueller, because I think there's something to be said about elsewhere. But do you think he and he had an inappropriate relationship with Donald Mueller? Or are you on Sister Aloysius? You could just do this. Are you Team Sister Aloysius or Team Sister James? I think that he was doing something, and uh, whether or not he went as far as to have the actual the actual act there with with the boy or if he was grooming him and this is based on you know what i've seen or read in other works and things like that and you know the idea that always oh, taking a liking to him and the wine and, and he's a vulnerable student aside from the fact that he's a boy you know a middle-aged middle-aged middle teen boy you know middle school boy he's also in a very vulnerable position in the school so I, I, I see that he, I don't know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I think he was taking advantage of this, of this child. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have the, we just have that to go on based on our own context that we, of what we know of, of the scandal that unfolded over the course of however many decades in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a tough one. It is a tough one because I... Mm. <laughs> that is the thing is because mm-hmm. I think you are to a certain extent tainted, I guess. Like you're bringing in outside knowledge yeah. of what you have known 
priests, and I don't want to say all priests, but that it has been a a systematic, I guess, or something that is symptomatic of the mm-hmm. Catholic Church is that uh, priests have been engaging in this uh, toxic behavior. And so you come in and you're like, oh, but then you look at him and, you know, his uh, relationship with the community potential, you know, his sermons. Mm-hmm. The boys' basketball team seems fine, doesn't seem anything. But all of this, yeah, stuff that's going on, like, it's very suspicious. So I really want to say that I am uh, team James, Sister James. But I feel like the one thing that throws me off is the fact that when she makes that lie, that lie threat, that he backs off and, and he says, you know, don't don't do anything else i'll leave and so that's what makes me um a bit suspicious i yeah so i think there was at least something historically with him i want to believe that he didn't do anything with donald and he was just kind man to him but yeah it's a hard one i think Mm -hmm. which is why i think it's an amazing play honestly because you can't say yes or no it's like oh yes but yeah sort of thing so Oh, boy. Well, we've reached the end. I think, uh, well, we both said that we liked it, right? Yeah. We did at the beginning? I hope. Yeah. Okay. Now we ask whether this is required reading. I would say yes, because of how succinctly it puts all of these issues into perspective and makes you think about not just the issue at hand, but the concept of guilt and doubt and innocence and how we come to the conclusions, just the things we were talking about. And you, it's rare that you get that in something this uh, brief. I think it is required reading. I think it is able to, and I wonder how my school would deal with this actually, mm. <laughs> given that it is a, a non-denominational Christian school, but I just wonder how, how they would deal with it. Uh, but just, yeah, the topic of doubt, that is something I think we all wrestle with, whether you have a faith or you don't, and a real-life cultural situation that we know of, and then just really interesting human interactions and questions of, you know, what is best for the community or the person at large, or the person or the community at large, I flip those. I I think there are so many interesting topics and questions you could do. So I feel like, yes, and it's short, it's only 54 pages, I think, and that's with the preface. So I feel like you could potentially do that, you know, this could be a one day or maybe two, you know, two class Mm -hmm. period thing. So, and I think actually, I do know that I think a couple of students are actually doing a couple scenes from this. Oh, interesting. Advanced acting classes. So I guess there it answers that question. Yeah. Uh, But I'm not sure which one in particular. So there you go. Okay. Oh, well, sorry. I was thinking. (laughs) I was just about (laughs) to say. Oh, I'm done now. Tom's going to go work on it. People, you know, it has been, it feels like it's been a while. Part of it was my fault because of the play. And I just like pushed back that one episode and then we finally did it. So it's just seemed crazy. So anyways, Tom, we have episode 42 next. Yes. What are we going to read? Well, we're reading the only book that you can read for episode 42 (laughs) of the Literature Podcast. And that's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. So it's a much more lighthearted topic than uh, some of the ones that we've had in recent in recent episodes especially I this guess one so, yeah yeah i mean i don't know how i don't know how lighthearted the destruction of all life on earth is but 
Adam certainly makes it humorous. So yeah, so come back next month for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, until then, check us out like where you usually find us: Twitter, Facebook, email. Please uh, leave feedback. It's been our schedule's been uh, we've been all sorts of wonky and crazy between um, all of our different uh, episodes and our different schedules. So the feedback bin is pretty empty at the moment. We didn't have any this episode or last episode. So we would love to hear from you guys. Uh, And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And take care of other people out there. It's not just for you, but it's for others. And be sure to also contact people and just check in on them and see how they are. Yes, yes. But keep a safe distance when you do. Yes. Yeah, I'm talking phone, I know, I know. phone or FaceTime yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 okay. everything's going to be okay. We'll be fine. I think so. But yeah. until then, you should listen to Station 11. <laughs> yes, go Yes, go back and listen to our episode on Station 11 and read that yeah. book and, and, uh, and then hope everything turns out much better than it did there. There you go. Sounds good. Good night. Goodbye. His resignation was his confession. He was what I thought he was. And he's gone. I can't believe you lied. In the pursuit of wrongdoing, one steps away from God. Of course, there is a price. I see. Oh, Sister James. What is it, Sister? I have doubts. (laughs) I have such Listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? 
If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.